Oh hey, thanks so much for joining me, I really appreciate it. I'm your host, Gary. In case you don't know me, I'm the editor of Fort Nerd, and I'm the DM for the D&D Actual Play series Quest for the Cure and the Ice Holes, Rime of the Frostmaiden. I'm also one of the producers on the upcoming Cyberpunk Red Actual Play, Cyberpunk Independence. I'm glad you're joining me today. There are two things I really wanted to talk about, and I'm very excited. First, February 28th is Rare Disease Day, and as you know, we here at Fort Nerd are passionate supporters of Duchenne muscular dystrophy research. Duchenne is a very rare disease. So to acknowledge the day, I'm hosting a special Quest for the Cure one-shot adventure starting at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 p.m. Pacific, on the Team Squad Up Twitch channel. I'm joined by an amazing cast, including Hope Lavelle from D&D Beyond's Silver and Steel, screenwriter Tennessee Martin, Woodmaster himself Anthony from Talon and Claw, Feliza Cassano from Cyberpunk Independence, and returning questers Velvet Valhalla and Rachel Seeley, the DM of Girls, Guts, Glory. For those that have been following the story of our Quest for the Cure show, this one-shot represents Episode Zero, a prequel which may provide hints into where the story all began. I really hope you'll tune into this charity event on February the 28th at 3pm Eastern Time, 12pm Pacific. I'll drop the link in the show notes. We're proud to be once again sponsored by D&D Beyond, and we'll have some D&D Beyond bundles to give away. Our second big announcement is the show we've been teasing for a while now. The Cyberpunk Red actual play, Cyberpunk Independence, is premiering on March the 7th. Cyberpunk Independence is going to be a great opportunity for those unfamiliar with the Cyberpunk Red system, because we're learning and teaching the system as we go. The show stars Feliza Cassano, Amy Lindazura, Rachel Seeley, and Emma Wakelin as the storyteller. We're really excited to show you what we've got. I guess technically I'm in there too. It's Fortner's first in-house production, and I'm absolutely stoked for you to see what we've been working on for the past few months. But for now, I'm excited to have chatted with Keith Baker. Baker's best known as the creator of the Eberron D&D setting and the card game Gloom. With many D&D writing credits to his name, most recently exploring Eberron on the DM's Guild, Baker has become a mainstay of the TTRPG industry. He's also recently published a cooperative storytelling card game based on the hit podcast The Adventure Zone, called The Adventure Zone Bureau of Balance. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Keith Baker. Hey Keith, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. So I would really like to ask you, what was your first experience with Dungeons and Dragons? Did I read correctly that you started playing around the fifth grade? Uh, so fifth grade was when I ran my first game. Okay. I actually probably got a hold of the books, uh, which at that time was the white box and the hardcover original AD&D books, right. uh, when I was around eight. Okay. And essentially at that point, uh, it was sort of a little more, especially because no one else was playing. It wasn't like I had all my friends, you know, uh, yeah. playing. Uh, and so it was a little more than I could just throw together a game right away. But I loved the books, like the monster manual. I just remember was just one of the coolest things ever. It's this huge <laughs> book full of pictures and monsters. And, uh, and in particular, deities and demigods, I always loved mythology. And here's this book that actually lets me say, okay, if Zeus and Thor got into a fight, who would win? <laughs> uh, so basically the point is I owned the books for a couple of years and just loved them as books. Mm -hmm. And then it was around fifth grade when I actually got, you know, friends fourth or fifth. 
you know, around then got some friends to actually start playing. Do you have any memories of that first game when you, when you brought all those friends together and said, here, this is what I want to do? I don't. I mean, it was a long time ago. I know that certainly my earliest games were pretty much classic dungeon crawls because mm. that's a lot of what, you know, one of the things I did was pick up other modules and I didn't ever, I probably did actually, I probably ran the original um, Battling the Giants, you okay. know, the Giants Stronghold. Uh, ones just because that's what was out and, you know, and I had them, but I pretty quickly started to just wanting to make my own stories and sort of using the existing modules as, as sort of guidelines, uh, but making up my own, own dungeons and things like that. Uh, I know by the time I got to certainly like junior high school, I was running more complex, you know, complex stories. And one of the early things I remember that just sticks in my mind because it sort of reflects onto Eberron is mm -hmm. that the mages guild were complete jerks <laughs> uh, because like basically they just had a monopoly on stuff. So it was the sort of, hey, you want a magic item identified? That'll cost you, you know, <laughs> XXX uh, because Oh, it's the only way you're going to get your magic item identified. And so I was certainly playing with the concept of what a magical monopoly uh, could be like uh, at an early age. Obviously, um, the pandemic has changed a lot of how we interact with each other and limited our ability to connect with people face to face. Have you been able to um, keep up with gaming virtually or is it something you've had to set aside uh, for the last little while? Uh, there was certainly a period that I I didn't play as much because I do like in-person gaming. Uh, however, I have been uh, for the last couple of months. I've been in a 5e campaign as a player. I am just starting. Uh, I've, I've done the first session. I'm starting to run a online campaign in Eberron mm -hmm. uh, for my Patreon supporters, something I call Threshold. Okay. And uh, so I'm, I'm, you know, trying and I've, I've played in a couple of different campaigns, uh, you know, online. And again, I and, and that varies from I generally like to run it as mainly theater of the mind, mm -hmm. uh, just doing that. But I'm also playing in a campaign that is using Roll20 and is very tactical, you know, uses all the, the elements that provides. And I got to say, you know, if you're playing that kind of a game, it's a pretty impressive tool set. Yeah. that rural 20 brings to the table uh so so you know it it slowed things down but and especially because a lot of times when i play games would be at conventions right and well <laughs> that that hasn't happened so much yeah but i'm definitely getting you know i'm adapting um so obviously uh over the last decade and a half or so, you've become a pretty well-known game designer, not just in the RPG space where a lot of people would know you as the creator of Eberron, but also in the board game and card designing space. Mm -hmm. I'd really like to know, when did you realize that gaming was going to be your career? Oh, I realized that when I was probably around 13 or 14. Okay. Um, it was definitely the case that, again, I love those D&D books. And the point to me is, someone wrote these books like this is a job that someone has and i have yeah. no idea how you get that job but you know it's not unlike looking at a you know i don't know a piece of wood carving and saying someone carved that wood i could learn to do that now back when i was doing this of course there was no concept of like game design as a college major or anything like that but yeah i i knew very early on 
someone has a job making this stuff and I want that job. And I will say that while role-playing games were really the focus of what I was interested in, uh, I did design a couple of board games back when I was in high school, you know, just for fun, uh, playing with friends, not that I was trying to sell any of them, but that was always, I was always interested in essentially the full spectrum of game design, not purely role-playing. And I know you started your career in video games, right? Is that correct? That is true, but that was never what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. The point is I went to college. I knew that I wanted to make role-playing games. I did continue to design a couple board games to run games and such in college. I uh, I did writing and uh, to a lesser degree history mm -hmm. uh, as my focus in college, thinking these are both things that will be relevant. And when I got out of college, it was just, okay, but how do you get that job? And essentially, uh, there was an opportunity at a local computer game company. And so I took it, you know, it was still getting to make games. But it wasn't like that was something I mm -hmm. particularly aspired to do. And I'll say I'm not a particularly skilled computer programmer. The work I did in the computer game industry was always on the design side. Uh, so working on story, working right. on dialogue, working on systems. The funny thing about it is that that company I worked at initially actually included a lot of people who were originally employees of TSR. Hmm. Uh, it included Lawrence Schick was the head of the department and he wrote uh, White Plume Mountain. And I actually worked directly for Zeb Cook, who did Planescape, uh, you know, and a lot of other central D&D type things. So the funny thing is these were people who had come from D&D into the computer game industry in part because the computer game industry plays a lot more money <laughs> than role-playing games. Whereas here I was in the computer industry wanting to go out into the role-playing industry. Right. And so uh, is it fair to say that from that opportunity at the video game company, it was sort of the fantasy setting uh, challenge that was done by wizards that sort of opened your career i know you were working for a few game companies before that right yeah uh so it's it's the yes and no is the answer to that question basically while i was working at magnet i found out how the role-playing industry works you know i went to conventions talked to companies i answered open calls you know a lot of my early work was based on open calls which is you know company says we're making a monster manual submit a monster we'll pick the ones we like and pay you you know two cents a word mm -hmm. and so i did a lot of work like that that as i said not well-paying right. uh, and not secure. Part of the point of an open call like that is they may just not like any of your monsters. Um, so basically the computer game industry, while it pays well, can be very frustrating. I worked in it for eight years and nothing I worked on came out. <laughs> um, and I worked on a lot of really good things, but there's just a lot of crazy stuff that happens. And so it was at the end of that, I quit because I was doing enough freelance work that I'm like, I want to try this. Could I do this full time? Mm -hmm. Now, again, freelance work, we're talking still pennies a word. You know, it's not like this was, I clearly had a great lucrative career ahead of me. It was right. a crazy chance, but I was going to try it. And then months later, two months after that was when Wizards announced the fantasy setting search. So the point is, um, it is not that the fantasy setting search made things possible. I was already trying. I was planning to do this. It meant that I had time to submit seven different ideas to the fantasy setting search because, hey, <laughs> I was full-time freelancer at that point. Right. Um, 
it is certainly the case that once Ebram was chosen, that opened up a tremendous number of doors. You know, so for example, I did a piece for Polyhedron, uh, which is to say at the time it was in that case, a, a sub specialty part of dungeon. Mm -hmm. And I have no doubt that they were, you know, they took a much closer look at my submission there than they would have a year earlier. Right. Uh, and things like that. So uh, it certainly helped, but I was already saying, I'm going to try and do this. The main thing to me is, yeah, I wasn't in a position where I felt like, oh, I could submit something to Wizards of the Coast or something like that. I was right. working for Atlas Games, Goodman Games, you know, small companies that were doing their own independent stuff. Mm -hmm. So uh, when you you first submitted your uh, one-page description, which was Thrilling yep. Tales of Sword and Sorcery, that's correct. Um, and you submitted six others. Mm -hmm. uh, what was your expect your expectation of where where that particular submission was going to go? Did you see that as being your most your your strongest of the seven? Uh, no, I actually considered it in some ways sort of the silliest. Oh. Uh, I I wrote it. It was the last one because it's the one that I wrote because I just thought it was fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, basically, I had been working for years previously on a pulp-themed MMORPG, okay. and as I said, that got canceled. But I'd been spending all that time watching pulp serials and movies and such, and basically I said, well, okay, I've written a couple things that I feel like this has this reason for existing and that reason for existing. What about if you just took D&D &D and, and just made pulp D&D? Uh, and then let's add in this concept of shouldn't arcane magic evolve in a scientific fashion since it behaves in a scientific fashion. Mm -hmm. That was just a personal thing I've always loved and felt. And so it's sort of like, let's just mash up a couple concepts I just think are fun. And let's have Indiana Jones, the D&D adventure. Right. And I think that is actually a big part of why it was chosen. And one of the things Belslavasek has said is because I think it was fun. Like you could just read this and see what is fun about this idea. Um, and, you know, it's, it's been quoted in a bunch of places, but, you know, part of the thing is the, the very opening of the, uh, that one page submission was just a little story where it's like Mickey Redblade was sharpening his dagger when she walked in. She was three feet of trouble, the most beautiful halfling he'd ever seen but he could see she was in danger and you know it's just that sort of point of saying yeah. this is the kind of adventure you can have you know it's the hard-bitten private dwarvish detective <laughs> um and and like i said you know it sort of evolved from there but i think it was just that point of just this is something that would be fun but i wasn't writing it because i really thought oh, they're going to go with this. And mm -hmm. when they actually contacted me and said, oh yeah, we want to move forward with this. I was like, what, really? Okay, let's do it. But uh, as, as has been said, you know, the point is it wasn't a campaign I was running yeah. at home. Yeah. It was just an idea I came up with that I thought sounded fun. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I, there's been a lot of, I've been talking with a lot of creators lately and a lot of them are sort of saying is like, you know, if you create what you think is going to be fun as opposed to what's going to be, marketable people right. will find what you're looking for um and, and that's the thing is that a number of the other ideas i submitted i was overthinking 
trying to, among other things, a couple of the ideas were things that I intentionally designed as this could intersect with other properties. This can be a bridge between Crin and Faroon and things like that. Uh, whereas I definitely see in you know, retrospect, the point is they didn't want something that was a bridge. They wanted something that was its own unique standalone thing, which of course Eberron was. Right. So you recounted a story wherein you found out that you made the top three while you're in the airport. Yep. Um, in 2003, how did that even work? Can you just briefly describe that story? Because I was fascinated when I read that. Yeah. So basically, uh, we were coming home from a family vacation where I hadn't had internet access. And uh, my wife goes and calls on a payphone, you know, to check voicemail. Uh, comes running back saying, oh my God, you know, wizards called. They had said essentially, hey, Keith, we sent you an email with a form that has to be turned in by Friday and we haven't heard from you yet. We hope you're going to get this to us. Uh, so there we are in the airport. You know, nobody has cell phones uh, at this point. And so we had to find essentially like a little business office type of place yeah. that had computers and printers get the email, print out the form, and then found a FedEx place that could do overnight shipping. So like within the two hours, we are just waiting for our plane to show up. Luckily, we got there early. I mean, the two lucky things are that it was, uh, we had a couple of hours and it was a big airport. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a small airport. This wouldn't have been an option. You know, it was an airport that had a FedEx right. at it. Um, and so... So yeah, <laughs> you know, it was, it was a pretty insane operation that it actually managed to get pulled off. It was like, uh, like some heist out of Eberron. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> Obviously Eberron was chosen as the winner of the fantasy setting. And when you're sitting down sort of in those early conversations with Bill Slavisek, Chris Perkins, mm -hmm. James Wyatt, and everybody who was sort of working on it, I'd like to know what those conversations looked like. You know, what was your reaction to working on a D&D book? How did you interact with these figures who created so much of what had become D&D? &D. Uh, well, first off, it was fantastic. It was, you know, there was about a two-week period that was just sort of us coming in every day, sitting in a room and discussing ideas. And it was a really amazing experience. I'd say really one of the most entertaining collaborations of my career, in mm -hmm. part because this was just sort of us building this world from the ground up that, you know, basically the point is we were working off the framework of what I had written, but then what we were saying is how do we make that better? How do we expand on this? What's the coolest ideas here and how do we make them cooler? Which comes back to the point of, I always in my core, uh, my core book, I had, there is a country of nomadic halflings. We have the conversation and say, okay, that's fine. You know, that's interesting, but what did they ride? And we think about it. And I, I remember it as James Wyatt. I think James says it was Chris, but someone says, well, what if they rode dinosaurs? And we're like, okay, that's cooler. And it was that all over. It was all basically, well, let's take the core ideas and say, how do we make these better? What is, what is compelling about this and what can we add to it? And 
as I said, it was just sort of two weeks of that, of just going through this and saying, what's the best, most compelling point of this? And is there a way we can make it even more compelling? And then towards the end of it, the point was them breaking down. So who's writing what in the, the actual final book and sort of dividing up those tasks and talking about, you know, how we would do that going forward and coordinate going forward. Uh, so for example, I mainly wrote, uh, worked on the, um, lore aspects of the uh, organizations, the nations, um, and descriptions of some of the monsters. But like James Wyatt uh, was the one who did the vast majority of the mechanics. So James designed the artificer, designed the warforge, you know, things like that. So we were all sort of working on different parts. And I, most of the names actually are uh, Bill. Like Eberron is not a name that was in my yeah. original uh, proposal in anywhere. Is there anything that you developed for the initial incarnation of Eberron that you wish you could have changed and maybe eventually did? And if so, what? Oh, sure. A number of things. I mean, one of the things I'll point out is that my most recent uh, book on the DM scale, Exploring Eberron, mm -hmm. is specifically talking about things that I did you know, I always wanted to include, like the big thing is that my original submission did include aquatic civilizations, mm -hmm. you know, that there were nations underwater of Suwagan and Merfolk and such, and Exploring Eberron finally does give you details uh, about those. Uh, some of the other things I'll say were less always there, but were still things that in the first you know, Eberron campaign setting. I'm like, that's not how I wanted that to be. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the biggest obvious examples of that would be the Blood of Vol, uh, which always to me, the whole point is this is a religion that has close ties to necromancy, but it is not an evil religion. Mm -hmm. It is a grim religion. And the Order of the Emerald Claw are an evil extremist faction of the Blood of Vol, but the Blood of Vol is not an inherently evil faith. And as I say, if you just look back to just the description of, of it in uh, the, the original Eberron campaign setting, that doesn't come across at all. And I started trying to reposition that in the Sharn source book and pretty much everything that went forward from there, that sort of picked up. And finally, we have a much more nuanced version of it uh, today. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, sure, you have things like the Blood of All would be a, a definite example of that, where okay. I wanted a little more nuance than was there. Obviously, uh, during your career, you've worked on a number of things, as we talked about, um, including some Eberron novels, the 4E campaign setting, mm -hmm. and exploring Eberron on the DMs Guild, as, as well as Wayfinder's Guide to Eberron, and ultimately the hardcover Eberron Rising from the Last War that was released in 2019. As you were working with the fifth edition design team, what were some of the design considerations you undertook as you sought to update Eberron for fifth edition? So I don't think there was a, a lot of things. I mean, one of the things that's funny is Eberron already in a number of ways, essentially some of the base ideas of Eberron were things that, that had just sort of been moved almost more into mainstream <laughs> D&D, like the right. idea of, oh, orcs aren't always evil and things like that. Uh, and so it was almost like we didn't have to make that many changes because D&D had changed towards us. Inspiration is essentially action points yeah. from Eberron. So we didn't add in a new action point system because it didn't really need it. Um, I will say that, you know, we did tackle a couple of different things. Like it was always the case that 
the uh, the dwarves were always just kind of not that exciting in Eberron compared to the changes to say the gnomes or the elves. And so we did add in this idea of the dwarves having closer ties to uh, aberrations and symbionts, mm -hmm. uh, which I'm very happy with and which I expanded further in exploring Eberron. Um, and, but that was building on symbionts were already part of the setting. Uh, the dwarves were already supposed to have had this abandoned empire below their realm that had been destroyed by the Dalkir. So we just sort of built on that. It wasn't like adding something entirely new. Mm -hmm. I will say the biggest thing to me comes back to actually, uh, the thing is, is that the mechanics of 5e in some ways support Eberron better than 4e did, and then 3.5 in that ritual magic mm -hmm. and cantrips are both really strong mechanics for the idea of Eberron as a setting in which magic is an everyday tool. Right. And so mage rites work much better in Rising from the Last War than they did in 3.5, where they never quite made sense. As you can imagine, this guy who can cast Arcane Lock twice per day somehow makes a job out of that. Yeah. Uh, and so... The idea both of wand slingers who, you know, use offensive cantrips instead of cast, you know, using bows and crossbows mm -hmm. and the idea of mage rights being able to use ritual uh, magic to do their jobs. Both of those actually just fit Eberron, uh, you know, again, rather than changing things, we're just like, well, this actually makes this make sense in a way that it kind of didn't in the original interpretation. So I'd like to transition a little bit to talk about some of your work in the board and tabletop game space related, but not, not, not mm -hmm. the same. So uh, you've also designed uh, the Adventuring Zone uh, story, storytelling game, uh, mm -hmm. which is specifically a storytelling game as opposed to a card-based RPG. Yes. Why did you decide to make this uh, a storytelling game as opposed to a card-based RPG? And what's the difference, do you think? So... As to the why, the Adventure Zone is based on the podcast. So the game is called the Adventure Zone Bureau of Balance and mm -hmm. it is based on the podcast, the Adventure Zone, which is a uh, three brothers and their father playing initially Dungeons and Dragons. And when we first started doing it, a bunch of people were like, well, isn't the Adventure Zone game Dungeons and Dragons? Like, aren't they playing Dungeons and Dragons? And the point is they kind of are is that what the experience, if you're a fan of the Adventure Zone, mm -hmm. the experience is this is a bunch of friends playing Dungeons and Dragons, but they don't know the rules very well. They're fast and loose with it. And it's more that they are having fun telling a story. Right. And the point to us was, if you're a fan of the Adventure Zone, you may have never played D&D. You may not have the time to play D&D. That uh, we wanted to make a game that you could play in a little over an hour with anybody you don't have to play it with you know sort of a particular you should be able to play this with your family your friends anyone right. at all and that you shouldn't need a game master like we should just be able to sit down and within about an hour tell a funny fantasy story that we all enjoy mm -hmm. so it's more that we were trying to capture the experience of the adventure zone rather than the underlying framework that they were using at the time, right. if that makes any sense. Totally. And so the point of the Adventure Zone Bureau of Balance is that 
the cards, you create a dungeon essentially by laying out three decks of cards and the combination of different decks and uh, the cards are double-sided. So there's variety there, but the combination of what cards come up, you know, creates the challenges you were facing. You're standing mm -hmm. at the great gate, trying to deal with the, the giant who's guarding it. And meanwhile, uh, to, you know, solve an arcane riddle. And all of these are challenges that you face. And to deal with this, you have to get down to the bottom of the deck. Uh, so there's a basic structure and a very simple mechanic where there's a difficulty. People are good at different things. You roll a die to overcome things and different characters can help each other. So right. it's sort of who's going to help me out here. And then the big part is, well, once you make that decision, tell me how you're doing it. Describe it. And the whole idea is really that we wanted something that was a good, essentially, bridge into role playing for people who haven't actually played a game like D&D, uh, who don't really understand, like, how does this work? What am I doing? And we're saying, well, you aren't really, you don't have to pay attention to very many statistics. You don't have to worry things. But tell me what you're doing. Tell right. me the story. And so that was the point, is that I did make um, another game called Phoenix Dawn Command, which is a straight standard game master driven uh, ongoing campaign role playing game that right. uses cards as a resolution mechanic instead of de uh, dice. But with the adventure zone, we wanted something that is much lighter is much more accessible and that really is that idea and i've heard a lot of people saying this like someone basically saying i could never get my dad to actually try DD, but i played this game with him and he loved it uh that it's it's almost like if you took DD and said well what if we made it more like a party game right you know i also i knew this but i was reminded of it that you designed gloom Yes. which uh, is a game I spent a lot of time playing in mm -hmm. the uh, last uh, last decade. Um, where did you come up with the concept for Gloom, which is fairly unique, is most games are like, you want to get the most points. Well, no, in Gloom, you want to get the least points. <laughs> yes. um, it's an interesting mechanic. And where did you come up with the idea for the theme as well? So the basic idea with Gloom was that I saw a deck of transparent playing cards and I said, wow, okay, uh, this is just a cosmetic little thing. It's meaningless for this deck. But if you can do that, I want to make a, make a game that uses it. Like mm -hmm. what can you do with transparent cards? So I started from that premise, then said, well, what's an interesting theme? Oh, there's already magic. There's already a lot of fantasy games. There's already a lot of science fiction. I've always been a huge fan of Ebergori. Charles Adams. Uh, and of course, at the time, Lemony Snicket was fairly right. new, which said to me, okay, there's still an, an audience for this kind of humor. And so I jumped on that to say, well, let's go with that sort of Adams family, dark humor uh, situation. And also just that point that there are so many games that you want to be the last one standing that I liked the idea of, okay, but what if in this game, you want to be the first one to go? <laughs> like uh, that, although of course, part of the point of gloom is you don't just want to be the first one to go. You want to have the most tragic story, which yeah. can take a while. Um, and so part of it was, again, just that sort of how do we take, you know, something you actually see in a number of aspects of Eberron of how do we take the thing we all take for granted, you know, the standard way and what if we turn it on our, its, its head a little. 
And it is the case that Gloom is very much a sort of predecessor to Adventure Zone because part of the point of Gloom is while it has actually more sort of solid mechanics than Adventure Zone, uh, it's still the case that what I discovered is a lot of what people love most about um, Gloom is telling stories, is building on the, the framework of the cards to tell stories. Mm -hmm. In Gloom, that's not required and it's not actually, you don't get any bonuses for telling a story. It's just part of the fun. Uh, for the adventure zone, with that in mind, we actually make it part of the game, that there are a number of cards where you get specific bonuses if you answer specific questions. Tell me how you're doing this and you'll get a plus one. You don't have to do it, but it's encouraging you to do it. Whereas for Gloom, again, it was just entirely, this is how I think the game should be played, but the game itself doesn't in any way actually actively encourage it. Right. Yeah, and the reason why I asked, brought up those two particular um, titles is because I did see sort of the kernel of, yeah, here's this storytelling mm -hmm. idea, which is enhancing the game. And of course, like you said, Adventuring Zone sort of builds on on what you developed in that. Yeah. Uh, um, so looking back at your career, which is almost two decades at this point, um, are, is there anything that you wish you'd done differently Really, I mean, I feel incredibly lucky to have had the opportunities that I had. Mm -hmm. I mean, something like Eberron, it, it's funny of that I often say I'm more proud of Gloom than I am of Eberron uh, because Gloom I did in 2003, it was right after Eberron. So mm -hmm. both those things were very early in my career and Gloom essentially was something where I just came up with the idea for the game. I prototyped it in my basement using overhead projector film. I pitched it to Atlas and they took it. And so that's something that basically I did make in my garage and get to be real. Whereas Eberron was such a stroke of crazy luck that yeah. Wizards decided to do this contest in the first place, let alone actually, you know, making it to the top out of 11,000 people that I consider that just, I'm, you know, the luckiest nerd alive, uh, as opposed to Gloom, where I feel like, well, I can take credit for that. Like that was me sort of making that from start to finish. Um, but basically, uh, no, you know, I mean, I feel, uh, again, part of it is that it took me a long time when I was out of school to actually find out how right. do you, how do you start submitting freelance work and things like that? And could I do it all again? And, you know, do that more effectively? I think just today, it is easier. There are game design majors, there are a lot more companies out there for people to work with, whereas mm -hmm. 20 years ago, there were not as many. Yeah. Um, there's a lot more ability between Kickstarter, drive through RPG, DMs Guild, there's a lot more opportunity to self publish than there was, you know, back in 2003, there was no way I could have done gloom on my own. Whereas were I to do it today as you know, adventure zone shows I could. Yeah. And, but as I said, I don't regret that I didn't do gloom on my own because back then it wasn't, that wasn't a possibility. Right. Uh, so no, I'm pretty happy with okay. how it's all gone. Okay. That's fair. So what, what's, what's next for you? I know you said you're, you're working on something uh, for DMs Guild. Could you share a little bit about what that is? Yeah. I have a number of things going on right now. Uh, we're obviously continuing to develop things for the adventure zone. Uh, and I also have a new gloom product in the works, a new oh. standalone, uh, gloom. Uh, going back to some of the sort of classic themes of Gloom rather than a different genre like Cthulhu Gloom or anything like that. Right. Um, in part, drawing on the various lessons I've learned over the last decade. 
I am also working, I mentioned before that for my Patreon, which is just Keith Baker, I am running a campaign uh, set on the Western frontier of Brayland in Eberron that basically different players get to to play the characters. It's an ongoing story, but different players get to play the characters. So my Patreon supporters uh, each time. And I am working on a book called Frontiers of Eberron Threshold, uh, which is specifically about uh, the Western frontier in Eberron and, uh, or Corvair. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that basically sort of draws on some sort of aspects of, of uh, fantasy Western, if you will. Um, and, you know, you're in a small mining town trying to, to carve out a place uh, on the borders of the nation of monsters. Um, and so that'll probably come out in the summer, okay. I will think. But it includes a lot of, of basically part of it is that what it really does is builds on the nation of Droam, which okay. is the, the realm of monsters in Eberron. And it's saying, we're going to put you right in the middle of Brayland on one side and Droam on the other. And so I love Droam. And it's this chance to say, let's look at monsters in a different way. You know, what is like when the monsters aren't monsters, they're your neighbors. And, you know, they've got a thriving, rising nation. Uh, and you know, what does that look like when you're standing on the line in between that and, uh, so I'm curious about how the campaign for your Patreon supporters works. How do you, Mm -hmm. how do you engage everyone? How do you involve them? So first of all, my original idea for it was that I would pick names out of a hat to determine the players and Patreon, unfortunately doesn't allow that. You can't have any purely random uh, chance because mm-hmm. it would be too close to gambling. Right. Uh, so first of all, uh, I do a lot of polls. So for example, when we started the can, you know, started this whole idea, one of mm-hmm. the things I did was over the course of two months, we built 10 characters. I pitched, here's five different concepts. We're going to have the tough guy. Do we want the blacksmith? Do we want the sheriff? Do we want the marshal who's retired sentinel marshal? Do we want the bounty hunter? Uh, people would pick from that list. Then we'd say, okay, we're, we're playing the blacksmith. Are they this, 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 you know, and sort of answered, you know, okay. asked a lot of questions and built out. So everybody felt, a, feels a sense of ownership of the characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, then before each session, I put out some kind of challenge. So in the last session, I said, tell me the character you want to play. There's 10 different characters. We're only going to have five players. Tell me the character you want to play and tell me a connection they have to one of the other characters. And so not only am I picking who's going to play and who they're going to play, but I'm actually saying whatever they've said will now be part of the story of those characters. We are now establishing that the uh, Taylor's children go to the schoolhouse run by the scholar. And that's the way it's going to go going forward. So, um, you know, everyone feels that this is a, a building, uh, you know, a sort of building story that they're all part of, even though only five people actually play in the session at a time. And I'm recording the sessions and, and patrons get to watch the sessions. Right. So, you know, you get to follow the story, even if you don't end up playing it. 
that's incredibly Oh, sorry. I was going to say incredibly unique, but it's something can be. It's either unique or it's not. Um, yeah. but... I, I was fun for the last one. And I, I want to continue to do these things where basically people are going to help build out the town, build out the setting. But for the last session I did, for example, right before the session, I threw out a thing on the Patreon that was a poll saying, okay, which of these things are going to feature prominently in the adventure? Uh, a sleeping ogre a box with strange sealed box with strange noises coming out of it, terrible weather, a familiar face. And people picked, you know, a sealed box with strange noises and bad weather. And those things <laughs> became an important part of that adventure. Right. So, you know, the idea is, again, even if you don't get to play, you get to sort of shape the story a bit. That's incredible. Keith, I really appreciate you sharing all of this with me. Uh, thanks so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining me this week for the Cocti Podcast. It was great to chat with Keith Baker, and I'm really excited for you to see what we're working on, both on Cyberpunk and Quest for the Cure. Thanks so much. This is Gary signing off. And remember, if the die is cocked, it doesn't count.